you either live in the realm of the kingdom of Satan and sin reigns in your life, or you live in the kingdom of God's Son and righteousness is at home in your life. That's it. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom begins a new 10-part series titled, Not Even One. According to the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Roman Church, Prior to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, every individual's heart is in one and only one condition, complete and total depravity. You don't have to look far to see the evidence of that reality in your daily life. But what about those who live apparently good, decent, and moral lives? Are their hearts depraved? Do they need the gospel in the same way as what we consider outright evil people? Well, Tom will examine what the Bible reveals about these important questions as we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. But the question of primary importance is this, what condition is your heart in? Keep that in mind today as we begin this important new series. And Tom, the Apostle Paul draws a bleak picture of the state of mankind in Romans 3, doesn't he? It's true, Bill. He certainly does. But, but I think you have to keep in mind why. You know, Paul is writing this letter to a group of churches in Rome that he didn't found and has never visited. And he wants them to support his new ministry to Western Europe. He's thinking about Spain and, and heading there. And he wants them to be his supporting church for that ministry. And so he is laying out for them the gospel that he taught and preached. And an important part of that gospel, in fact, the crucial part of that gospel, is understanding why we need it. And really, he lays the foundation for that in the first three chapters, but especially in the passage that we're studying in this series. It is absolutely foundational to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible right now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. Today we come to a new paragraph, but it's a paragraph that is really a continuation of Paul's argument as he has laid it out in the first several chapters of this letter. So let me just remind you of the flow of his argument so far. We've noted that his argument really doesn't begin till verse 18 of chapter 1, because initially in the first 17 verses we have a brief introduction to the letter. He mentions himself, the recipients of the letter, and, and gives some interaction with them about his plans to see them and his desire to see them. After that brief introduction, Paul then begins the heart of this letter, and the, the first major section of the letter I've entitled, The Gospel Explained, Justification by Faith Alone. This first section begins in verse 18 of chapter 1 and runs all the way through the end of chapter 4. The gospel explained. Now, Paul doesn't actually get to the explanation of the gospel itself, the good news as we refer to it, until chapter 3, verse 21. That's where he will begin that explanation of the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is justification by faith alone. 
But before he can get to the positive side of the gospel, he must first lay a foundation with the negative side of the gospel. Yes, the gospel has some bad news because it's only that bad news that makes the rest of the gospel good news. And that foundation, that foundational understanding is man's utter lack of personal righteousness. He builds this case beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And he builds it in a successive degree, or I should say a successive series of indictments. He begins by indicting pagans in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, the, most of chapter 1. Those who, who don't claim to know the God of the Bible. He indicts them for their sinfulness. They lack personal righteousness. They need the gospel. Secondly, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and running through chapter 3, verse 8, he indicts the Jews, and not just the Jews, but all who claim connection to the true God. And he says they, too, lack personal righteousness. They, too, need the gospel. And then when we get to chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, the passage we just read together, he summarizes all of that. He condenses it to the reality that all humanity lacks personal righteousness. Every human being needs the gospel, the good news that he preaches. Now, in this last paragraph, Paul summarizes and completes his universal indictment of all mankind. And as part of this, he also presents a body of evidence from the Old Testament to prove the sinfulness of everyone, that every person is under sin. The picture that he draws here that we just read together is an accurate but, frankly, devastating portrait of fallen mankind. It is what theologians call depravity. Now, having said that word, I immediately know that there's much confusion about what that word actually means. So as we begin the study of this passage, let me tell you what depravity does not mean. It does not mean that people act as badly as they are by nature. None of us act apart from grace. None of us act as badly as we actually are. Why is that? It's because of God's common grace. His common grace, that is, his grace that's common to all men, not saving grace, but the grace that works among all his creation, restrains evil among us. How does it do that? Well, by an innate sense in our hearts of of sin, awareness of God, and awareness of coming judgment. As chapter 2 says, the work of the law written in our hearts rebukes our consciences and and restrains our evil. Human authorities are part of what God uses in his common grace to restrain evil. Parents begin that process in the home, curbing the the wicked tendencies of their children, directing them to self-control. Human government, as he'll talk about in Romans 13, is another tool to restrain evil, to keep people from acting as badly as they are. So depravity does not mean that people act as badly as they innately or inherently are. It also does not mean that every sinner will indulge in every form of sin. Clearly that's not true. We have, as James describes it, we are each tempted by our own lust, our own unique set of temptations. Although they're common to man, they are unique to us. Depravity does not mean that people have no knowledge of God's law nor a functioning conscience. They clearly do, and Paul's already dealt with that. 
Depravity does not mean, and this is very important to understand, that sinful man doesn't admire those things that are good and virtuous. He does. Why? It's because of the residual image of God. He understands certain things to be good and virtuous because of that remnant, that marred image of God that's stamped into every human life. Depravity does not mean that believers don't actually perform actions that appear to be good and that even appear to be keeping of God's commands. Unbelievers do this. Unbelievers appear at times to be keeping the commands of God, respecting their parents, helping other people in need, and so forth. But those works, while they appear to us to be good, do not appear to be good to God. Here's how both the Westminster and the Baptist Confessions describe it. Works done by unregenerate men, although they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, remember Paul says whatever isn't of faith is what? Sin. Nor are they done in a right manner according to the word of God, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God. So we look around and we see people do good things, even things that are good by the standard of Scripture. But they're not good before God because they're not done in faith, they're not done according to the Word, and they're not done for the glory of God. Depravity does not mean that every sinner is as depraved as he could possibly ultimately become. Sadly, we see that lived out in some human lives as that depravity begins to grow in intensity and in expression. So what does depravity mean? By depravity, we mean this. The corruption, that's a good word, the corruption that we inherited from Adam through our parents, that corruption permeates every part of our nature, including every faculty and power of our souls and our bodies. In other words, depravity simply means this. Sin is in every part of us. That's depravity. Now, here in this passage we're going to study together, we learn two things about depravity. We learn, first of all, that it is universal. That is, that it affects the entire human race without exception. And secondly, we're going to learn that it is total. By total, when we talk about total depravity... Again, what we mean is that it affects every part of our person or the totality of our person. Now, let me show you as we begin here how Paul develops his thought in this paragraph, and then we'll look at it together. First of all, in verse 9, there is the formal indictment of man's depravity. The formal indictment. He makes a legal accusation. And then in verses 10 to 18, he presents the biblical evidence for man's depravity, a string of Old Testament quotations from various passages brought together as the evidence, the proof of human depravity. And then finally, in verses 19 to 20, he deals with the legal implications of our depravity. The legal implications. And let me just summarize verses 19 and 20 for you. Essentially, he says, because of our depravity, all of us stand condemned before the bar of divine justice, and we have absolutely nothing to offer in our defense, and there is no way for us to escape. Those are the legal implications 
of human depravity. Now today, I want us to examine verse 9 and the formal indictment of man's depravity. This is the last paragraph before we get to the really good news. But it is only in understanding this that we appreciate the good news. Let's look at it together, the formal indictment of man's depravity. Now again, just to remind you, in in verses 1 to 8 of this chapter, the section we studied last time when we were in Romans, Paul finished his indictment against the Jews by answering their objections to his gospel, a series of four Jewish objections to the gospel. But at the end of verse 8, it is, as one, one writer describes it, as if a guillotine falls and makes an abrupt change. Because in verse 9, Paul steps back from his arguments against the Jews to summarize what he has argued in the first three chapters. Notice the unusual way he begins in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Now the question, what then, as I said, doesn't refer merely back to the first eight verses of chapter 3, but it reaches all the way back to the beginning of his argument in chapter 1, verse 18. We could paraphrase it this way. So in light of the arguments I have made so far, what conclusion should we draw? Now look at the next question. Literally, the Greek text says, are we better? It's one Greek word. Are we better? What is Paul talking about? Who is we? Whom is Paul discussing here? Well, there are two possible options, and I need to give you both of them because they are both possible. First of all, it could be the Jews. Paul could be using we to refer to himself and his fellow Jews. If this is the correct option, and by the way, some translations so much assume that it's the correct option that they actually put it in the text. If you have the ESV, they add it. They say, are we Jews better? The word Jews does not appear in the text. It simply says, are we better? But this is an option. If this is the correct option, Paul is saying something different than he said back in verse 1. You remember in verse 1, he says, what advantage does the Jew have? And he said, there are a lot of spiritual advantages the Jews have. Number one being they have the scripture. But when he gets to verse 9, he is saying, but those advantages only go so far. Jewish people, if, if he's arguing here that the we is Jews, he's saying that Jewish people are not inherently spiritually superior to Gentiles. Their innate spiritual condition is no better than a pagan. They too are guilty sinners before a holy God, just like the Gentiles. Now, I think this option is possible. That's why I share it with you. But I don't think that's what Paul means when he says, are we better? And let me give you a couple of reasons I don't believe that's what he means. By the way, that is the most common view. I should be honest with you and tell you that. Let me tell you why I don't think that's what he's saying. First of all, in this letter, Paul often refers to Jews But nowhere else in the entire letter does he associate himself with the Jews using the pronoun we, as he does or appears to do here, if that were true. Also, there are other uses of of the verbs that have we included in them. You understand that Greek is an inflected language, so the pronoun we doesn't occur in the text. It's It's included in the verb, as in other inflected languages. But there are others here. Notice verse 8. We are slanderously reported as saying, sin so that good may come. 
That's, that we is clearly Paul and his fellow Christians. In the second half of verse 9, there's another we. For we have already charged. That is clearly Paul. So understand then that it seems more natural for the pronoun we that's sandwiched between those two not to refer to the Jews, but to Paul and his fellow Christians. If this is what Paul means, and I'm convinced it is, then we could paraphrase verse 9 like this. What conclusion should you draw from what I've said so far? Am I somehow claiming that you, my fellow Christians, and I are somehow better by nature than everyone else that I've been condemning in the first two chapters? Am I claiming that Christians are in and of ourselves, by nature, apart from grace, spiritually better than unsaved Jews and Gentiles? Notice Paul's answer in verse 9. Are we better? Not at all. This is an emphatic denial. Absolutely not. Let me just stop here and and make, make it clear that we understand this. If you're sitting here this morning and you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sins and you put your faith in him, it is not because of anything in you. You are no better, nor am I, than anyone who's not yet saved. It's not because God looked down and said, now there's an intelligent one. There's one I can use. There's a person who's a little better than the average person around him. He didn't say, I I see, I look down the corridors of time and I see that he will believe. I'll choose him. No. Are we better? Absolutely not. We are Christians because of nothing in us but solely because of divine grace. Now, Paul next explains why he cannot be teaching that Christians are better. Verse 9 says, for, because, here's why that can't be what I'm saying, because we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He says, listen, we're no better because I've already shown you that all Jews and all Greeks are under sin, and that includes us. Now, remarkably, here in verse 9, Paul provides us with his own summary of everything he has taught in the letter to the Romans so far, from chapter 1, verse 18, to here. Notice how he says it. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the point he's been making, and he makes it clear that that's the point he's been making. Now, look at what he says specifically. The Greek word translated charge, that's a legal word. It means literally to accuse beforehand to charge with guilt before time. That is, before the time to to actually find a person guilty. So this is a legal word for an indictment. So far, there's no proof, there's no conviction, it's an indictment. I have indicted, is what he's saying. I have indicted both groups with sin. By the way, that's an important point to make because Paul doesn't claim here that he has already proven the guilt of all people. He's going to do that in just a minute with a string of Old Testament references. So far, he has merely issued an indictment, an act, a legal accusation, a formal accusation. And notice who he's indicted. He says, I have accused the Jews of being guilty and the Greeks as well. And in this context, the word Greek is used of all non-Jewish people. So basically, he's saying all Jews and all non-Jews. What does that mean? Everybody. 
You are either Jewish or you're non-Jewish. It's everyone, all humanity. I have made a formal accusation already, Paul says, that all humanity is legally guilty before God. Guilty of what? Look at verse 9. We have already charged that both are all under sin. Now that is a momentous expression because it's the first time in Paul's letter to the Romans that he uses the word sin. He's talked a lot about our guilt. He's talked a lot about what causes God to be angry with sinners, but it's the first time he actually uses the word. What is sin? The Greek word simply means to miss the mark. It's to fail to hit the target that God has set with his commands. That's sin. Let me give you a theological definition. Sin, the catechism says, is any transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. My wife's parents taught her the catechism when she was a child and as we've taught our own children. And uh, she tells the story that when she was in, I think it was first grade, somewhere early in school, uh, there was a new teacher that came in to the school and, and uh, early in the school year asked the, asked the kids, all right, kids, so tell me, what is sin? You know, expecting the sort of typical first grade response. And my wife was eager to answer, you know, and held her hand up, call on me, call on me. And teacher calls on her and she stands up and she says, sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. (laughs) That poor first grade teacher, she was thinking, what have I gotten into? (laughs) But that's exactly right. That's what sin is. But I want you to notice in verse 9 what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that we all sin, that we all commit sin, which is true, and he's going to prove that very quickly here. He's going to say it in other ways throughout the letter, but that's not what he says here. Instead, notice he says, and you've got to put on your grammar hats here, it works in both English and Greek, he says, we are. What is are? Are is a verb of being. It's a verb that speaks of a state of being or a condition. He says, we are in a state of being or a condition that can best be described as under sin. Now, that is absolutely crucial to get because when you and I think of sin, we think of acts we commit, and those are issues. But our problem is greater than that. Our problem is, in the sight of God, we are all in a state or condition of being under sin. That's a remarkable indictment of all humanity. Now, what does that mean? It's absolutely foundational to understand this, because remember, this is Paul's summary of everything he's taught so far. And it also brings us to issues he'll touch on in the future in this book. So we need to understand what this means. Under sin refers to several realities, several spiritual realities. Let me give them to you. First of all, to be under sin means to be in the realm of sin. All people belong to the kingdom where sin reigns. You know, when we look at people and we evaluate them, what do we do? We evaluate them on a sort of sliding scale of goodness. We look at somebody and we say a coworker, a, a fellow student, a neighbor, a family member, and we say, 
you know, he's a pretty good guy. Or we say, you know, he's, he's not really a very good guy at all. We're looking at relative states of goodness, a scale. That's not how God looks at all. From God's perspective, every person on this planet, and let me say it more personally, every person in this room lives in one of two realms. You either live in the realm of the kingdom of Satan and sin reigns in your life, or you live in the kingdom of God's Son and righteousness is at home in your life. That's it. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled Not Even One. Tom will bring you part two on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.